Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stu stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. Today we are actually reading a passage which we could have spent time on last week. Uh, we didn't for medical reasons. I was out. Uh, and so last week would have been typically when we would have read the account of the transfiguration. For those of you who've been through the season of Epiphany and Lent before, Usually, Epiphany ends with the Transfiguration, and then Lent begins with another story, uh, sometimes the, the fasting in the wilderness, other times uh, some of the miracles of Jesus. The reason why we actually read it today was because sometimes in our schedule of readings, there is the word or, and they give the minister the option of choosing one or the other. And it just happened this year that I had the option of choosing to to read this reading instead of another passage, which we actually have only uh, touched most recently a few months ago. And so I thought it would be helpful, even at the beginning of this season, to look at this passage as 
a demonstration of really what the spirit and intention of Lent is. And that is an intentional season of remembrance by which we re-examine and focus on our need for Christ. As I said at the beginning of worship today, it's not the case that Lent needs to be a very somber and serious and very calloused, stiff you know, approach to our relationship with God. It's not that at all. It's not a inward, morose turning and a, a searching of our own lives for sin, but it is an acknowledgement of our deep need for Jesus Christ. And we see that clearly in this passage today. We see what Jesus is ultimately stating, tying his uh, glory, which he reveals at the transfiguration to that very same event that he foretells at the end of the passage. With that in mind, we're going to look a little bit at the season of Lent, what it is historically, what it's about, why we celebrate this season, why we uh, in, intend to celebrate it. Um, just to, to head it off of the pass again, you don't have to fast during Lent. And if you do fast, don't go around telling everybody. Lent's not the one time in the year where you get to disregard Jesus' teaching about not pro- proclaiming your fasting. Uh, we, that's an acceptable sin in the church. Um, it Lent has nothing to do with you proclaiming your righteousness to others in, in you know, announcing to everyone else what you are going to be uh, fasting from, pursuing the Lord with. That's really missing the entire point. The entire point is not fasting uh, apart from a turning to God and an intentional seeking for God. It's not the case that you can simply uh, abstain from something like Facebook or sugar or donuts, which I had two yesterday, so I'm not, I'm not fasting donuts. There's a little, there's a little trick for you. Um, it's not the case that you, that you can fast from these things and then not actually pursue God any more seriously or spend any more time in the scripture or in prayer and have that somehow count and you you've now participated in Lent in a good way. The point is the season is for you. It's, it's to be there as a reminder. It's not to be something approached as a religious obligation by which if you keep it, you will obtain favor with God. That's not the Christian understanding of fasting. Fasting is a positioning of us to receive, not an earning of merit with God. So uh, after looking at the purpose of Lent, what it's about, why we're Uh, focusing on our need for Jesus Christ during this season as we prepare for Easter, as we get ready to remember the passion of of our Lord as he takes on the sins of his people and suffers in their place. Um, As we approach that season, we see various aspects of his glory. And we're going to look at how the glory that is shown on this mountain of transfiguration is actually not the, the pinnacle of the demonstration of Christ's glory, but rather how it culminates all the way at the cross. In, the, in between those two points, we're going to look at how his ministry was towards those who are lowly and meek and needed serious assistance, assistance that cannot be provided by any other means other than someone who is Lord over the spiritual realm. And so just as a few months ago, or a few, sorry, a few weeks ago, We looked at Christ having authority over the physical realm as demonstrated at his miracles in the wedding of Cana. We also today see his authority over the spiritual realm. And by seeing these two aspects of the lordship of Christ or the power that Christ is able to wield, 
we see a great glimpse of his ability to save. Essentially, what we see today is if he is able to deliver from spirits, then he's able to deliver from any problem. And that's, a, that's really the point. The point is not just for you to see this man bring his son to Christ and then realize, oh, I need to be like that man. No, the point is to realize it's right to bring it to Christ because Christ is the one who has the power to do something about it. And that applies for every issue in life, especially concerning our salvation, our understanding of who God is. Christ is the only one who can deliver from spirits, and Christ is the only one who can deliver from blindness of, of eyes, which cannot see God. In our songs today, we actually talked about, or we sung about, this very fact that that men who are afar from God, men who are, are sinners and rebellion in rebellion against God, cannot see God. Jesus Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, begins with a series of beatitudes, a series of blessed statements. And he says, blessed are the pure in, in heart, for they will see God. And, and it, that is blessed. That's wonderful if they should see God. But the devastating thing, as we see very quickly in, in the apostolic teaching, is that no one is pure in heart. And so if we are to see God, it requires God to wash us. It requires that we be received by Jesus Christ more than that we receive Jesus Christ. And that is essentially what takes place in the gospel. Jesus Christ comes to redeem a sinful people and he pays their penalty. And that is the greatest glory. And we'll see that culminating at the end today when Jesus foretells his death. So, Lent, as we mentioned earlier, more than any other season in the church calendar is a season of remembrance and an examination of our condition before God as sinners who need to be restored and redeemed, who need to be healed. Uh, many of you in the last few weeks, myself included, have been very sick. Uh, I, was, I was sick to the point where I was remembering, oh right, with Job, you know, his wife said, curse God and die. Well, I'm not there yet. But, you know, it would only take a few more weeks of living like this, and I could probably get there to, to where that would be a temptation. We, we as, as human beings, are frail people. It takes very little for you to be knocked off of your game. And, and a flu, which lasts a few days, can show you this. How much more our spiritual condition, where we know that we are far from God, where we, where we understand that we are, have not been seeking God, we may delude ourselves thinking that we are seeking God, but Paul says in Romans 3 that there's, there's none who seeks for God, that all of man together have become corrupt. Uh, you, 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 especially every four years in America, you get a chance to see some people who have lies that come out of their mouths. Uh, but the scriptures say that all of us are filled with venomous lips. We, we spew forth lies. We, we don't pursue God. We're not lovers of God. We're not searching for God. We're hating God. We're running from God. Like Adam, after his sin, he's hiding from God. That is what the condition of man is before a righteous and holy God. And Lent is a time in which we remember that. It's not the case, Christian, that you can continue in your Christian walk and assume, well, yeah, I used to be a sinner and I have no need for that, or even remembering that I was that in the past. I'm now blessed, filled, happy, and on my way towards heaven, and, and ever consider that there is still things that you must put to death 
by the grace of Christ, which are in your life. Lent is a time of remembering our prior state and also considering what are there, what things exist between me and God. Are there sins that I'm harboring? Whether it be unforgiveness, pride, jealousy, the arrogance that says in, in, a, in our heart that says, well, we're doing pretty well these days. We can kind of coast in our relationship with the Lord. Lent is a great leveling of our spiritual pride by which we humble ourselves. Sometimes uh, most, a lot of Christians traditionally have used fasting as a way to humble themselves, to remind them of their deep need for Christ that goes beyond just a mere intellectual idea. It really is realized through the fasting. It's communicated to that person through their, through their abstaining from from various foods, things which are necessary and are good, it's a testimony to yourself that there is a greater need than even your need for food. The great need being grace from Christ. And so that's essentially what the purpose of Lent is. Uh, if you, as you're coming to the table today, you may see that we have a purple garment over the altar. And that purple garment, uh, just to, to provide a little bit of edification for the, those of you who have never celebrated Lent before, the reason it is purple is not just because purple is a royal color. Indeed, purple as a royal color is fit for our Lord. And the purple garment, which is here on the altar, is a reminder of the fact that Christ was mockingly robed by the Romans on his, at his crucifixion with a robe as they were mocking his kingship. But it's also a visual reminder of what it is that flesh, what flesh becomes when it is bruised and beaten up. It becomes purple in the bruising. There's a, a sort of visual aspect to the in, intentionality of the color. And, and I, th I find this to be an, a deeply edifying understanding of what exactly the season of Lent is heading towards. It's heading towards the death of God in the flesh. God in a human body, the man Christ Jesus. A few weeks ago, we were having a Bible study at our house, and we were looking at how in the tabernacle, as Moses was told to make it, the tabernacle veil and the robes which the high priest was supposed to, to wear are made out of red and blue and purple threads. Because red, blue, and purple is the color of flesh that is beaten, bruised, and bloody. That is the color of the body of Christ as he goes to the cross. So this is what Lent is a reminder of. These are some of the aspects in which we celebrate. These are the ways in which we remind ourselves. But those things cannot be celebrated for them, themselves. You cannot just simply fast because it's Lent and that's what we do as Christians without any sort of heart connection to that celebration. I would encourage you to consider fasting, but don't consider it just because everybody else around you is doing it. Don't consider it just because that's now the cool thing to do, because we as people, especially at GCF, are trying to get back to a more liturgical or uh, what you might uh, say classical form of worship. It's not just that we fast because it's the cool thing to do in celebrating the church calendar. We fast because we seek to remind ourselves of our deep need for Christ. In fact, if pride is at work in your fasting, I would encourage you keep fasting and especially work on humbling yourself in that pride. The fact of the matter is that Lent is the time in which we seek to root out especially pride. 
in, in our lives. So, uh, it's not surprising, although it does seem surprising, that at the very beginning of the season, we're, we're reading about this glorious event where we see Jesus Christ arrayed in majesty and splendor, filled with light, radiating light from his body, and having Moses and Elijah come and stand with him, they testifying to his greatness, not he testifying to their greatness. Jesus Christ is revealed as this, as this wonderful, uh, most amazing mountaintop, literal mountaintop experience that, that one could ever hope to have. And so it may seem strange that we're talking about this at the beginning of Lent, usually a season in which we understand that we can't see God. And yet we see God in the flesh in this, in this reading, standing on top of the mountain, being demonstrated as righteous by his Father, literally emanating light from his body, this divine light. And the reason why is because it is a divine contrast. Luke is showing how Jesus Christ is God and man, perfectly united in one glorious person, two, two uh, natures in one person, both God and fully man, and Jesus Christ and his glory being displayed, then he begins to predict or prophesy or foretell the depths to which he will go. And it's not just the fact that Christ was in the heavens, but also that he is God himself. This is what we see at the transfiguration. And so all the more as we begin on this journey to see where he's going at the cross, we should be shocked and in awe and filled with wonder that this beautiful, glorious God would go to that place, and indeed that he would consider the cross to be his greatest glory, not his least glory. Verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling. If you, if you remember Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus Christ in the spirit, and he sees Jesus as one who is arrayed in garments of white and has hair that's white and pure, eyes that are filled with fire. Now, I don't know about you, but that's terrifying. Eyes that are filled with fire. Here, the disciples see an aspect of Jesus' glory, which he veiled during his time on the earth. But they see it, and they don't see it for their own accord. They see it for our behalf, that we would be able to receive this record of what takes place. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. This is, these are, these people, Moses and Elijah, are the representatives of the law and the prophets, those who were mediators between God and a nation which was desperately in need. Moses was the lawgiver, the deliverer, the one who removes the people from Egypt. And Elijah is this one who not only prophesies and calls the people back to God, but also is the miracle worker. More than any other person in the Old Testament scriptures, Elijah is doing works of power, works of ministry in the midst of the people of God. And so Jesus Christ here is standing, and Moses and Elijah come to attest to his glory, and they speak with him. I want you to pay very close attention what they're talking about. In the middle, at the very center of this event, they're not talking about his divine glory, which he had with the Father beforehand. They're discussing the glory which will be revealed at his departure. 
at his departure. Verse 31, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. If your understanding of Jesus Christ is that he was tricked into his death, repent. Jesus Christ intends to go to Jerusalem. He intends to demonstrate his glory by departing from this world intentionally as a decided fact. He knows what will face him in Jerusalem and goes and chooses to enter into his sufferings. And this is glorious. It's not at all as if Jesus was deceived and tricked into his death. He intends to display his glory, and he does so marvelously. This is the very thing which, is, which he's focused with at this, at this event. When he is showing his glory to his disciples, the thing which is on his lips is his death. And that seems completely contradictory. Imagine any great understanding of, of perhaps uh, an encounter in the Old Testament by which we see either an angel or someone, a messenger from God, they're usually arrayed in, in light. They're, they're usually demonstrated as coming with a message, having something to tell the people. And Jesus is seen here as having glory and selling forth that glory. And it's all about his death. It's not about coasting through or somehow earning the favor of God and just living what we would consider to be a continual victorious life. Most of the church at times believes, whether it's individuals or sometimes denominations, entire areas, that the mark of Christian maturity is continual victory and progress. And in fact, some aspects of the church, especially in the American culture, and which we have been exporting, especially those teachers which we know as prosperity preachers, the preachers that are on your television set, believe that a mark of God's favor on your life is continual victory and breakthrough and progress. I want to submit to you that that is anti-Christ. Jesus Christ demonstrates his favor with the Father by announcing that he is going to suffer in place of his people. Now, you or I, we do not suffer in this way. We do not suffer to achieve the atonement of the people of God. But do not be deceived. God is not demonstrating his favor over your life by continual victory and progress. There will be times of suffering, and that is most clearly seen in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So after moving from this mountain, uh, as, as soon as this happens, I want you to take note of what Peter says uh, Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain, and if you remember any events from the Old Covenant, this is very similar to Moses and his mountaintop experiences. Jesus uniquely chooses them to behold his glory as it's made manifest. It's not at all the case that this was accidental. Jesus did not bring the 12. Jesus br uh, brought Peter, James, and John. This is exactly like Moses bringing Aaron and Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, up onto the mountain to behold God, to receive the law, to commune with him, and then to understand God's or Yahweh's instruction as the people go into the land. Jesus takes them up to the mountain for this very, it's a recapitulation of a very similar event. They are shown the divine light and life which are in the Son of God. Jesus Christ in John chapter 5 says, as the Father has life in himself, so also he is given that the son would have life in himself. This divine begetting 
from the Father to the Son, this this begetting in, in its perfection is a begetting of life. It's a begetting of the divine being. There is no understanding here that the Father somehow has the source of the Godhood that Jesus does not. Jesus has life in himself, and he was involved in the very creation. And so to see this divine light, which we speak of when we say the creeds, light from light, God from God, this very God who is demonstrating his divinity at this mountaintop experience is going to go to the place of humility at the cross. Peter, when he sees this, ought to have become like Isaiah. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how Isaiah is prophesying and he has this encounter where he's pronouncing the woes against the nation of Israel for their various sins. And and after pronouncing six woes, he then has an encounter with the holiness of God by which he sees the train of Yahweh's robe, which fills the temple, the glory and the smoke filling the heavenly sanctuary. And Isaiah recognizes his own sin in light of seeing and beholding the divine being And he humbles himself and says, woe is me. He turns the seventh woe, not on the nation, but on himself, declaring himself in need of a savior. Now, we love Peter. We in no way wish to dishonor Peter, but Peter desperately got it wrong. Peter gets it wrong in a very serious way. Rather than saying, it is fitting that we should have been here, Peter, upon seeing Jesus Christ in his light, if there were any reality at what, what was going on, Peter should have said, woe is us, for we are sinful men, and we are following a holy man. Peter gets it completely wrong, and this is an aspect of pride. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, master, it is good that we are here. Now, I want you to just imagine a little bit, there's, you're on a mountaintop, you've been following this teacher for a few years, and he is then on the top of the mountain with two other people who didn't come up the mountain with you. There is light all around, probably trembling and quaking of the mountain as we understand from what took place when Moses went up. Very similar event. They probably were terrified already before the cloud and the voice come. But here, Peter says, it's good that we're here. No, Peter, it it wasn't fitting that you were there. Peter, Peter somewhat asserts that it was right for him to, and James and John to be there, as if they somehow earned it, or they, you know, as the special three out of the 12 who were with Jesus, who he often would take on special missions or special trips. They, Peter assumes that he has the right to be there, as if he's earned or curried favor with Jesus, such that it was right that they were there and not the rest of the disciples, or that they would then be able to testify of this event. And Peter's failure is assuming that Christ's glory is to be memorialized. He says it's right and fitting that we're here, and then he begins to proceed and say, we should set up three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and for Elijah to testify in the future of what took place here. Peter is completely missing the point. Jesus Christ's glory is not to be memorialized in booths or temples 
or tiny altars which Peter wished to set up. Jesus is intending to show that his glory cannot be contained in a physical place and that his glory is going to be incarnated and incarnated especially in his sufferings. The eternal son of God who dwelt with the father and the spirit for all eternity enters into his creation. The very one who made men becomes a man and lives like a man to take on the penalty for the sins of man. He walks and ministers among men, women, and children. And as soon as this mountaintop experience is over, Christ then begins to descend into the land. And as he descends, he ministers to a person, an individual. A, a great aspect of the Gospels to understand is that as you are seeing Christ blessing various people, healing one, delivering another, uh, he is actually doing uh, something to a particular person. He's healing that individual, but through that healing, he's testifying about his glory. He's testifying about his eternal nature. Christ's willingness to help fathers in this passage is a demonstration of the heart of the Father. Jesus Christ is spending time with one individual person. Remember who this person is. This is the eternal Son of God, and he makes time for an individual human who has a problem with a dysfunctional and depressed or somewhat uh, you know, demonic child. This is absolutely astonishing if you understand who Jesus is. He's the eternal creator. He's the one who lives and exists in glory with the Father and the Spirit. And in his ministry, he condescends to the point of spending time with average people. Average people. This is exactly what's going on. Average people. This God who dwells in unapproachable light descends into and in the midst of the darkness of his people. You see, the people of Israel were supposed to keep themselves clean. That's why it's so important that Luke records, not, not that this spirit was just a demonic spirit, but it was an unclean spirit. It was a spirit which this person should not have been defiled with because the Israelites were being taught how to abstain from those things which were unclean and to approach God in cleanliness. Now, we don't have time to unpack the full Old Covenant teaching of clean versus unclean. It was supposed to be, as we understand from the New Testament, it was supposed to be a tutor or something to teach the Israelites of their need to be clean finally and fully. And this child who has this unclean spirit is ministered to by one who is the Lord over spirits. Our God is not dualistic. God in, in, in his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ was not simply concerned with physical healing, physical problems, but also spiritual problems. Some of us, we, especially in this church, we emphasize spiritual healing. And so this is a, we, we of course love this passage. We, we love when we see Jesus deliver people from demonic spirits. But we also need to em emphasize that Jesus was a physical healer as well. But lest we be deceived in one direction or the other, there is no divorce for Jesus Christ. It says that he cleansed him and then healed him. This is, this is showing the, the true aspect of what human beings are. They are spiritual and physical beings. How is it that the Lord of the universe avails himself to the petitioning of a man with a dysfunctional and 
and, and demonic child? How is it the case that God himself would take time in the flesh to spend with just one person? The depth of the brokenness of this young man had pressed a reality upon his father such that the father recognized his need to come to Christ. Now, I want you to clearly look at what takes place with this, this father and his disciples, Jesus' disciples. <clears throat> uh, he says uh, in verse uh, 38, it says, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. Many people never get to this point where they are willing to understand the depth of their need and begin to understand that they are beggars. They don't need to act like beggars. They already are beggars. They absolutely need Christ. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Verse 39, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Verse 40, and I, beg your, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Many people attempt to reject Christ because of the sins of his followers. And they think that that is a right reason. They, in fact, this has been enshrined in our culture from a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, which he, if you don't know anything about him, we're not going to, this isn't a history lesson on Gandhi. But he's famously quoted as saying, I love Christ, but I don't love Christ's followers. Or I love your Christ, but I'm confused by, you know, he, he, I, He's not speaking English at the time. Uh, the, the point being that he assumes, Gandhi assumes in his spiritual darkness, that if Christ is real, then his followers would obviously be perfect. But that's a faulty assumption, and one that is clearly not justified in the scriptures. Now, this man, by his righteous example, does not fault or uh, fail at this point. This man does not at all get hung up on the fact that his disciples were unable to cast out the demon, he still comes to Christ. But many assume that they are justified in holding their arm against Christ, keeping themselves at a distance from Christ because of the sins of his people or the sins of Christians throughout history. This is absolutely no justification. The reason why is it does nothing for the need. Consider if this man were to be just seeking to justify himself in not coming to Christ after his disciples fail, his boy would still have the spirit. It does absolutely nothing to the need, and it is a false reason, one that often keeps people from entering the kingdom at all. Unlike this man, many people never recognize their need. They are willing to cope through life, excusing the sins of themselves or others, from for long amounts of time, if not their entire life, always putting off approaching Christ and not recognizing their deep need. Many of us consider our physical ailments and our maladies, those things which plague us. I know it is often the case that I'm more willing to pray in the midst of my sickness, but what would be great, what would be a sign of God's grace would be if that we would also consider our spiritual maladies, not just if we need deliverance from evil spirits, but those things which plague our hearts, those things which are the hidden sins, which then give rise to the leaves of the tree sins, that those things like pride and lust, as James says, that any time we sin, we're first led away by our desires. 
Ultimately, what we need deliverance from is not simply just evil spirits, although those are real and powerful and clearly something that Christ is supposed to deliver us from. We also need delivered from apathy of heart, which prevents us from recognizing our need for Christ at all. This is the chief aim of this season. It's a time of reminder that no matter how much progress or maturity or number of years in serving Christ or walking out the Christian faith, I am in deep need of Jesus Christ and am hopeless without him. And if you do not walk in that way as a Christian, if you consider yourself as a Christian and yet you do not have that attitude and spirit about you, that I am hopeless without Jesus Christ, then you really have not considered the central tenet of the faith, which is that as a sinner, I am in need of redemption, and I need to be reunited to the God that I have hated. And unless that is the foundation and bedrock of your faith, you do not yet perceive the gospel. Would that Christ would open your eyes to your deep need to be washed and sanctified and put right and adopted into the family of God. We were strangers and aliens without God, without his law, without hope in the world, hating God, running from him. And Christ comes to show us not only that he is able to save, but also that we need to be saved. That is the central tenet of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is attempting to show here. And he's going to reference that in a few moments as we uh, examine, as he says, what's going to happen plainly to his disciples. Without this understanding, you cannot come to Christ at all. Jesus is one, at one point says, unless you become like a child, you cannot receive the kingdom of God. And that's true, but I would also say, and I, I, I don't think it's twisting his words, that unless you become like this father and beg Christ, even though his followers have failed you, unless you come to Christ like this, then you cannot come to Christ at all. My question to you, is this real to you? Do you know this? Do you know this in your head and does it resonate in your heart that you are utterly hopeless without Jesus Christ? Not that you're a good person, not that you're able to improve various things in your life. You're able to, for a few weeks at a time, turn over a new leaf or treat people better or, or that you're able to do good works. And if you're still seeking to justify yourself, then you do not understand the justification that is in Christ. Paul, the, who in the scripture of God, the holy scripture of God, testifies of himself, and there is no rebuke given to Paul that he perfectly kept the law. Even he says, I consider all my requirements, all my earnings, all my merit as to be worth dung, considered to the glory and the redemption that is in Christ. And brothers and sisters, although we, yes, we all resonate with this at some level, this is what Lent calls us to again, that we would lay the foundation even deeper by the grace of God, that he would open our hearts to our deep need for him. And we're going to see where this need is taking our Lord. So at the wedding of Cana, we saw at the beginning of Christ's ministry that he is Lord over time and Lord over matter. We saw this in the fact that he's able to take water, which, uh, by the way, is not alcoholic, and turn it into wine, which is not water and is alcoholic. And he does this miracle over the physical realm. And then as he gives this wine to the servants, the servants draw it out of the jars, which were there for the purification of those who were ready to eat, um, to make them ready to eat. 
they take this wine and they present it to the master of ceremonies at the banquet. And Jesus then is revealed to be full of wisdom. The master of ceremonies gives a commendation to the wedding couple. He says that most people save, uh, serve the best wine. And then once people are a little bit tipsy, uh, that I'm paraphrasing there, once people have had their fill, uh, then they serve the bad wine. Why did they do that? Well, you don't notice how bad wine is once you've had a few glasses of it. Um, if you, you know, you serve a nice uh, Bordeaux and then you move on to like a Franzia throughout the course of the evening, um, there should be more laughs. You, you, you should know wine a little bit. Um, Bordeaux is a very nice wine and Franzia is in a box. And, and the, the point is, the point is, if you don't know anything about wine, Wine in a box is not expensive. It's not good wine. It's passable. Um, what, what happens is that as Jesus takes this wine and, and, and makes it from water, the, the servants scoop it out of these jars, present it to the master of ceremonies, and he says, most people serve the good wine and then the bad, but you have preserved the best wine for last. What, what Jesus is testifying to is not only his wisdom in how to make good wine, but also that he's Lord over time because wine that is properly made is aged. He's able to make something, he's able to bring something about which is perfect and is a physical miracle. He's Lord over matter, he's Lord over time. Jesus is Lord over the space-time continuum to put it in post-Einstein speak here in the 21st century. But not only that, Christ is also, as this shows, Lord over spirits. He's not just Lord over the physical realm. He is Lord over and has authority over the spiritual realm. And we see that by him casting out this spirit. We see it just as clearly in healing this boy. Christ is the creator of all spiritual beings, spiritual beings and he is Lord over them. Think about what you have been able to do in the spiritual realm. And if you have any sort of reality... Before coming to Christ, the answer should be nothing. You and I do not go around doing things in the spiritual realm. Before we are brought into Christ, we are said to be dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't do anything. Here is someone who can do something in the spiritual realm, which means not only does Christ have power in the spiritual realm, he also has sight, perception, understanding, wisdom over spiritual things. Jesus Christ is truly the Lord. And this is going back to the gospel. If he's able to cast out spirits, something that is impossible for the Pharisees and their disciples, and even in this passage, Jesus' disciples, then he is surely able to save to the uttermost. If Christ is Lord over all, then surely he can conquer my idol-making heart. That is essentially what the point of this is. It's not just that... Christ is able to deliver from evil spirits and evil powers, but he's also able to deliver from the evil power which is in you, which is your indwelling sin and corruption before regeneration. After this glorious miracle, after this wonderful mountaintop experience and this demonstration as Christ having authority over the spiritual realm and being the Lord over all spirits, Christ then plainly tells his disciples where it's all going, where he's headed to. Verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. So there's a great group of people here 
And then he turns privately to his disciples. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. I love this phrase. I, I think Luke is an amazing writer. I think Jesus truly said these words. Luke faithfully records them. And I love this translation. Other translations say something to the effect of let this sink into your mind. Some of the, the uh, various manuscripts that we have, or not, uh, not the original writings, but the, the various copies, uh, one or two of them have a different reading. They have let this sink into your mind. And it's not an improper translation, but I like this because he's, he's attempting to convey how difficult it is for men who do not know God to understand what the cross is about. He says this in order to convey or to give some sense of the importance of heeding the words of Jesus here at this moment that we would give great attention to and utmost importance to hearing these words. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus Christ, at various times in his ministry, we, we saw one a few weeks ago during Epiphany, was often at, at war with the Pharisees and Sadducees. At times there were crowds which were stirred up by the religious leaders of their day, and they sought to put their hands on him, and it says at one point that he passed through their midst. But here Jesus is testifying clearly, the Son of Man is going to be given over. Men do not Men in Israel, the Romans, the, the Jews, they do not take Christ captive. He is handed over to them. When Jesus is arrested at Gethsemane, he's not arrested as if he uh, you know, was caught off guard. He sits there and waits for them. And he's given over, and it's right that he's given over. Verse 45, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The disciples clearly do not understand the, the point of what Jesus is saying. And in fact, that's evidenced by, if, we, if you just go down a few, passage, a few uh, verses uh, in, into the rest of this chapter, we see that they don't really understand where Jesus is going. They don't really see Jesus' point or even fully get it. And in fact, they're even somewhat afraid to bring it up. They, they assume that if they bring it up, they might be rebuked. They're a little bit afraid to understand what it means. And in fact, I think it's a spiritual problem which prevents them from understanding what is going on here. They assume that it'll always be like this. Remember what Peter, James, and John had just seen. They had just seen Jesus on a mountain represented and in glory, uh, emanating light from his physical frame. And then a cloud come and a voice come in testifying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Moses and Elijah are there standing with him, talking to him, testifying of his glory. Peter, James, and John have seen this and probably then began to at least talk about it within the disciples. And then they and the whole town that was with them saw Jesus deliver a, a boy from a demonic spirit or at least a young man from a demonic spirit. And at, at this point, they have seen victory after victory in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Physical, external manifestations of the glory of God done at the hand of Jesus Christ in order to show 
his power and glory. And so they assumed that it's going to be like this. Visions of the saints of old, signs and wonders, voices from heaven. They assume that this Messiah is going to continue on in this same way. At the time, we understand that the Jews were expecting a king or a Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. And the, Jew, uh, the, the disciples clearly operate in this mentality. They think that Jesus is going to be exactly like this. But Christ tells them this so that they're not going to be surprised. He wants them to understand that his crucifixion is not a removal of God's favor or a testimony by God that God was never pleased with Christ, but rather that it was always the central intention. The greatest manifestation of the glory of Christ is not found as he stands on the mountain of transfiguration. The greatest glory of Jesus Christ is not even seen as he's made manifest or demonstrated to be the Lord over all spirits. The greatest heart of Jesus Christ is seen most clearly on a hill in Jerusalem as he hangs upon a bloody cross. This is what Jesus Christ says to his disciples, and he would say to us, even at the start of our now journey through Lent towards the, the Passion Week, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would open up our ears to hear and our eyes to see that, that your crucifixion was a central aspect of your ministry, that you were seeking at all times to testify to your disciples the need for their atonement, the need for you to not only remove sin, but also satisfy the wrath of God, which is justly due on those who sin against you, which is all men. Lord, we ask you that you would convince us like this man with his child, uh, this father with his son, that you would convince us of our need for you to heal us, to restore us, to redeem us. We pray, God, that you would give us a great understanding, not only of our need, but also of your power to really do something about our condition. Lord, we ask that for those of us who've been walking with you for a number of years, that you would once again humble us, that we would be able to have the joy of the Lord in knowing that you have purchased and redeemed us, that we would not have aspects of pride in our heart which cause us to think that we're somehow better than others or that we deserve your favor or love. Lord, we ask that you would confirm to us the depth of the gospel, that we are in great need and that you are a great deliverer. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.